Welcome to the Jerry Bovino Show. And now, here's Jerry. Jerry Bovino, we're back with the lawyer to the stars, Ron Rossi. Good to see you. Ron, welcome to Aspen. Welcome to Grassroots TV. And we are really privileged today because Ron is a very famous lawyer from New York City who's out here on some Aspen cases, which he will share with us. And he was generous enough to take some time to help us out and teach us a little bit about the law. So uh, just give our viewers a little background, Ron. Where'd you grow up? Give us the picture. I grew up in uh, Port Jefferson, which is a town on the North Shore of Long Island, about 70 miles outside of New York City. Yeah, North Shore, boy, that's like suburbia out there. Exactly, exactly. How'd your family get to Port Jefferson? My, uh, my mother and father were from Boston originally, and uh, my father was an airline pilot. He got stationed at JFK Airport, and so they relocated out to Long Island. Oh, that's pretty cool. Did you ever learn to fly? I did not learn how to fly, actually. Did your father ever want to teach you to fly? I'm not sure that he, that he ever did. Uh, none, of, none of my siblings are pilots. My father-in-law is a pilot and has his own plane, and I often fly with him. And I think it probably would be a good idea if I learned how to fly or at least to land. God forbid anything. Yeah, you got to learn how to land. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm a pilot. Actually, it was a hard thing to learn. People think, oh, yeah, you become. It's really hard. I mean, to do it well, it's not. You can't be an idiot and be a pilot. Yeah, no. He was a uh, he was a B-52 pilot in the Strategic Air Command during the Vietnam War, and then uh, after six years on active duty, he went to TWA and flew for them for the next. 20 years or so. Okay. And you're with the firm of Cassowitz, Benson, and Taurus. That's correct. Uh, tell us a little bit about your firm, because my son David's a lawyer working with you on some cases here in Aspen and other places. And uh, David's very impressed with you and also with Mark Cassowitz, who's uh, the, uh, you know, the headline partner at the firm. Exactly. So, so my firm, Kazowitz Benson Torres, was founded by Mark Kazowitz, who's our founder and managing partner, exactly 25 years ago to the month. So we had our 25th anniversary recently. And we are a national firm that specializes in litigation, sort of high-end, high-stakes litigation for corporations, individuals, uh, financial institutions, a broad variety of characters. And David's very impressed with the energy, enthusiasm, and expertise that Kasowitz, Benson, and Taurus brings to the table. That's why he's partnered with you on these cases. Um, not all law firms are the same. Would it be, would it be fair to say that? Uh, I think that's entirely fair to say. Not all law firms are the same. Most law firms that market themselves for high-end litigation market themselves the same way, but there are really significant differentiating factors, I think, and, uh, and, and we believe that we are the premier litigation firm in the United States. Now, there's lots of talented litigators all over the country, but in order to strive for excellence, you sort of have to think of yourself as excellent, have that as an institutional ethos, and that's kind of how we operate. So give us an example. Like, what do you think differentiates the run-of-the-mill litigation firm from someone who actually intends to win? I think, I think really what we think is a key differentiating factor for us in the marketplace, and, and it may sound mundane, but it's anything but, is that we are relentless. And by relentless, I mean the following thing. There's all kinds of talented lawyers out there. There's all kinds of hardworking lawyers out there. But being relentless means taking your client's issue right into your very molecules and living with it as it's your own. 
and just not quitting until you've hunted down every possible avenue to solve that problem for your client. And that, that's really our key differentiating factor in the marketplace. Yeah, I, I think it might have been Vince Lombardi who said, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. <laughs> so you, everybody, and all lawyers, it's fair to say, want to win, but some of them want to do what's necessary to win. My son David was a champion tennis player, but you got to spend like eight hours on the court a day to get to the point where you can win those big matches. Exactly, exactly. I was a, I was a wrestler when I was younger, and in order to have any success at all in the sport of wrestling, which I think is very much like tennis in that you're out there entirely alone when you're competing, you need it's to... It's a lonely sport. There's no one to help you. It is. You, 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 you earn your victories singularly, and your defeats really fall on your own shoulders. But in order to be ready to compete, you need to be utterly prepared, and um, that's always a recipe for success in anything. So there's an interesting disconnect. Most people I know, including myself, like their own lawyer. They have respect for their lawyer. But lawyers in general just have a terrible, I mean, all the lawyer jokes. Why do you think lawyers have such a negative reputation, connotation? Why has that evolved that way? Uh, it's a... It's a, it's a fair question and one that, you know, I think satisfactory answers are sort of elusive. I think fundamentally, as far as I can tell in the last 10 years or so, there's a lot of people out there who think the system fundamentally doesn't work or that it's rigged or it doesn't work for them. And even if they individually have a good experience with a lawyer, I think they often see lawyers as part of that rigged system. And so you look, at a, you look at a situation or you hear about a lawsuit or you hear about a problem and inevitably it seems like the only people who come out of it with any sort of uh, net benefit are the lawyers and not the people involved in the dispute. Then you, you know, in any profession you have unscrupulous people who I think denigrate the profession. But basically I think it's a question of people being frustrated at thinking that the system doesn't work right or that it's rigged for the elites or that it's not working for them, and I think they see lawyers sometimes as part of that problem and not necessarily part of the solution. Okay, that's, that's a fair answer. You know, Shakespeare said, kill all the lawyers. And uh, <laughs> yeah, ask me how cold it was in Aspen last winter. Just ask me. <laughs> how cold was it in Aspen okay, last winter? Okay, Ron, it was so cold that when we walked out of the restaurants, the lawyers had their hands in their own pockets. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And there's Never a, ending. There's a thousand jokes just like that. One of the things I like to think about, though, in that, in that context and sort of on a macro level is when people come to me with a problem, when they come to my law firm, Kazowitz Benson, with a problem, and not to be too dramatic, but usually all, all manner of human endeavoring to solve the problem has failed. Reasonable attempts to just figure out how to solve it have failed every other dispute resolution mechanism has failed. So every time someone walks into my office, they're often at a point where they're suffering from a problem that is so abject to them, but it's routine to us, because that's when we first get introduced to a problem. It's, it's amazing insight, you know. That short of going out on the New Jersey cliffs like Hamilton and Burr with dueling pistols, they need you to help them solve their problem. Exactly. People don't like lawyers. They don't like the legal system. They don't think it necessarily is fair or it works right. But in the absence of an independent judiciary, in the absence of the ability to take your disputes to courts for resolution or to, or to private you know, uh, modes of dispute resolution, you're exactly right. The alternative is to take a pickaxe or a shotgun or an axe out of your garage and walk over to the person you have with the dispute with and demand justice. And that's pretty medieval. And sometimes they deserve it. 
our clients are always on the right side of justice. Of so course, exactly, of exactly. So your family, tell us a little bit about your family. Uh, so uh, I'm married to another lawyer. She hasn't been practicing for a while. God, how do you guys ever resolve a dispute? Uh, I, 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 What's her name? Say hello. <laughs> hey, Dara, how are you? It's, it's great, to, great to be on the show, and hopefully you'll be watching this. And so I, uh, I, I met her in law school, and the way we, we resolve disputes is as follows. My father-in-law took me aside relatively early in the marriage, and he said, you have two choices. You can either be happy or you can be right, but you have to pick one. And so she wins most arguments. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually pretty good advice. Every married man should get it. And then I have I have three children. So I have two in college, one who'll be a junior in college, one who's just about to start his freshman year in two weeks, and I have a son who just finished his freshman year in high and school. And their names, let's say hello to them. <laughs> Caroline, uh, Robbie, and Ryan. <laughs> I'm going to get nervous if you forgot the names. So, okay, let's do this. Let's take a sh short break. We're going to come back. Ron's going to tell us a little bit about his history in the military. He was a surface combat officer on a, a Navy ship, right? That's cool. During Operation Desert Storm and Desert Shield. We're going to thank him for his service and learn a little bit about that. And then Ron's going to teach us things you need to know if you get involved in litigation, including some of the amazing litigation that's happening right here in Aspen, Colorado, as we speak. We're coming right back. Bishop Plumbing and Air Conditioning, serving Aspen and Vail for over 40 years. Shoe covers, name tags, IDs. Let Bishop worry about your heating, plumbing, and air conditioning issues so that you don't have to. Bishop Plumbing and Air Conditioning, 925-8610. Pitkin County Dry Goods opened its doors on July 4, 1969 as Aspen's source for 60s mod fashion. Joining the sophisticated with the informal, Pitkin County Dry Goods offers an eclectic mix of creative boutique designers and wearable fashion basics. Aspen's oldest clothing retailer, Pitkin County Dry Goods, continues to deliver renowned customer service and innovative style to a loyal local and international clientele. Pitkin County Dry Goods. You can reach them at 520 East Cooper Ave or give them a call at 970-925-16. Eight one. Jerry Bovino, we're back with Ron Rossi, the lawyer to the stars, Kasowitz, Benson, and Torres. These guys are high-powered lawyers out of New York and a bunch of other cities. And Ron's involved in some really high-powered uh, litigation stuff right here in Aspen. Um, so talk a little bit, but I want to hear about your military service, because I think, you know, when you go into litigation, you're at war a little bit, and you are a military officer ready to be at war. Tell us about it. Yeah, certainly. And so I, uh, I attended the College of the Holy Cross, or Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts, undergraduate. It's a small liberal arts college uh, run by some Jesuit priests. And, uh, and, and I got a terrific education there, but in exchange for that education, I agreed that if the U.S. Navy paid my tuition, I'd give them four years on active duty as soon as I graduated. So the day I graduated, I got commissioned about an hour later, and I went on to active duty. You went as an officer? I went in as a junior officer, so in the Navy, that's an ensign. And 
and I was assigned to a surface warfare ship, in this case the USS Manitowoc, which was an amphibious assault ship. We carried Navy SEALs and Marines around to various wow. destinations worldwide. And, uh, and I was assigned to a naval Bunch of wimpy guys. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and, and you know, I went, on, I went on active duty literally that day. I spent nine months at a training school in Newport, Rhode Island that all the surface warfare officers go to. And then I was, you know, sent to my ship and deployed on my ship. That was in 89. By the time I got to my ship, it was 1990. By the summer of 1990, Iraq invaded Kuwait. Uh, we were rapidly deployed in support of Operation Desert Shield. So typically the run-up to a deployment is anywhere from six months to a year. We weren't scheduled to deploy, but we were needed. So we deployed in nine days. We literally worked 24 hours a day for nine days getting the ship ready to sail. And then I was 103 consecutive days to sea. So that included a transit from Norfolk, Virginia to the Persian Gulf. And then we were on station in the Persian Gulf through the duration of Desert Storm. And then when Desert Storm became an active DEFCON 1 area through Desert Storm. And what did your ship, did it deploy troops or what? When you say a surface combat officer, what was your specific role? Yeah, so, so my, my specific role was I was one of 14 officers uh, permanently crewed on that ship, and then we had about 250 enlisted men. And at that time, the Navy was single sex with surface warfare combatants. So nowadays, I think all of those ships are co-ed, but at the time, it was all men. And we were, uh, we were tasked with carrying a company of Marines, their amphibious assault vehicles, which are essentially like tanks without a turret. Mm -hmm. The Marines go in the back of them. The back of our ship would go down. These tanks would literally drive off the back of the ship. They act as a boat while they're in the water, and then when they hit land, they become like a, a like tank. A like a mini D-Day invasion coming off the ship. Exactly. So ultimately, we compiled what was the largest landing force since Incheon in the Korean War. Wow. And at the end of the day, what we did was, and I think it was tremendously prudent in retrospect, uh, Saddam Hussein had parked five divisions of the Republican Guard along the coast thinking that the main thrust of the assault was going to come from Falakala Island in an area just uh, in the Persian Gulf that was on the shores of Kuwait and Iraq. And so we ended up doing an elaborate fake attack. And that was designed to keep those divisions pinned along the coast. And then General Schwarzkopf did what became, I guess in military tactics at least, a sort of famous end around where he took troops in through Saudi Arabia, I guess, and came in behind those troops, kind of cut them off. And so at the end of the day, we ended up doing a very, a very elaborate fake attack. And, Which uh, will become famous in military annals and history, and they'll teach it to cadets forever. Yeah, and so we were, we were in the northern and central Persian Gulf for quite a while. The USS Tripoli, which was a large ship, hit a, hit a mine not too far from where my ship was. The USS Princeton hit a mine. So we were in sort of mined waters in that area for a while. It was, it was daunting while we yeah. were there, but, but it was also what, routine. We were driving the ship. Was the military a good experience for you? Yeah, I think it was a terrific experience for me. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't married to Dari yet. I didn't have my children yet, so I was single. I think it was much more bearable because I was single. Right. I was constantly gone. Uh, I was deployed out of the United States for 300 days the first full year I was on active duty. And then even when I got back from Desert Storm, I worked for an admiral for a while. I was down in South America doing things. I was in West Africa for a while. And so it was a great first job because a lot of kids, when they're in college, they're not sure what they're going to do. I had great friends in college who were still finding their way. And those first few years can be kind of stultifying because you're not really on track yet. And for me, 
I was thrust into a situation where I had 50 young people who were just a little bit younger than me, frankly, some older than me, who were really depending on me to manage and lead them. And, uh, and, and I was an important part of an important mission on a, on yeah. a warship. But in the military, there's a good job of teaching leadership, which isn't that intuitive. Sometimes you have to learn how to be a leader. I absolutely agree with that. And, uh, and, and I've tried to carry those lessons forward into my practice. Uh, but, you know, adjusting to life in the military and then life in a big law firm took me a few years to sort of get used to the politics of a big law firm because they're, they're fundamentally different than the politics of a U.S. Navy ship. Okay, so let's run right ahead now to some big-time litigation happening here in Aspen where Cassowitz, uh, Benson, Torres, and Ron Rossi are partnered with David Bovino, Bovino and Associates, and other lawyers in Denver and other places. It's a big prominent nationally recognized suit and let's talk about the uh, Fister litigation. Yeah, um, Nancy Fister who we all knew and loved uh, was murdered. We all followed that for uh, sadly because Nancy was a good friend of mine and many of you who are watching and her daughter Juliana is uh, an heiress to uh, uh, the Fister uh, uh, trusts. And so tell us a little bit about what's going on with that litigation. Yeah, sure. And I think in order to do that, just briefly by way of background, uh, my firm got involved fairly recently. Uh, David Bovino, who's a, who's a local Aspen lawyer who litigates cases all around the country as well, was adverse to the head of my firm, Mark Kazowitz, in a case. And through that, uh, through that lawsuit, they came to have sort of a mutual respect for each other's skills and developed a friendship of sorts once that lawsuit was resolved. David also has been working with a former partner of mine who wanted a lifestyle change and left my firm a few years ago and moved out with her family to Boulder, Colorado. Maria Gorecki. Exactly, who was a colleague of mine for 10 years and is a terrific attorney. And so through a series of synergies, uh, through Maria and myself on uh, our sort of uh, ongoing relationship, and through David and Mark, we've started co-partnering with David on some of his cases, and, and, and so far it's just been a terrific experience for us. So we're recently to the case. The case itself isn't so recent. So David and John Shannon, who's a lawyer in Denver, have really done a terrific job getting the case to where it is. And, and right now we are sort of at an inflection point in the litigation because we're getting ready to amend our pleading, and uh, that will be filed on September 4th, and hopefully thereafter we're going to be off to the races. So. One thing that's interesting, I, I, I always joke with David about this, is like in law, you're adversarial. You're, first of all, as a lawyer, you're an advocate. So you're not palling out with the other side trying to make nice. You want to represent your client's point of view, which is frequently, often, almost always different than the other lawyer's client's point of view. Otherwise, they wouldn't be with you. But I'm impressed that... Some, someone like David, who represents his clients so aggressively, and someone like Mark, who does the same thing, after they settle that case, now they're working together. That's an amazing thing. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, this is sort of like unsolicited advice for anyone who might be thinking about a legal career, but a substantial amount of legal business referrals comes from other lawyers. So a lawyer will have a situation where his or her client is in a problem, they have a conflict, maybe they can't take the case. Their client comes to them and says, well, is there anyone who you would recommend? And oftentimes they recommend either lawyers they know through professional affiliation or lawyers that they were even adverse to on a case who they came to respect just sort of through their skills. So I guess for lay people, they might think like, oh, well, this is just another reason I don't like lawyers. It's all rigged or whatever. But it's anything but. 
as I, you know, I wasn't on the case between Mark and David, but as I understand it, they were literally butting heads. But the point is that in the same way that if you're competing in athletics and you just come to have tremendous respect for your opponent, lots of times if you're litigating against someone who's skilled, who has a good demeanor, who you can tell has a good skill set, who's a solid ethical person, later on when the situation changes, you might go back to that person and say, hey, we could co-partner on this or I have a problem that I can't handle for my client, do you want to handle this? So if your only tool in the toolbox is to be a hammer all the time or, or act like a fool or be aggressive constantly, then you tend to see every problem as a nail and life just gets very myopic for you and so do your opportunities. Yeah, it's like even like, for instance, LeBron and Kevin Durant you know, compete fiercely on the court, but then they are on the dream team together, you know? Exactly. So exactly. it's an interesting thing. So tell us, what are the issues in the Pfister litigation? So the, the fundamental issue in the Pfister litigation is, uh, you know, our client Juliana is the beneficiary of certain trusts. And the question is whether or not the trustee over a period of year, years, there's a gentleman by the name of Andrew Hecht, who's, a, as I understand it, a prominent lawyer here in Aspen, been here for a long time whether he engaged in certain transactions that were essentially self-dealing to the detriment of Juliana as beneficiary and frankly other beneficiaries of those trusts and, uh, and to the uh, benefit, the maximum benefit of people that he was either closely affiliated with such as his son Nikos or even entities that he had controlling interests in. And so we're, you know, it's like an onion. We are peeling every layer of the onion and we're trying to ferret out where the truth lies. And we are not going to rest until we get there. So explain to our viewers, who most of our viewers are highly intelligent, sophisticated people, but explain as a lawyer, what is the fiduciary responsibility to the client? What does that really mean? What is the lawyer's what does he have to do when he represents a client, including you or David or any lawyer? Yeah, and so, and so and at the risk of sounding like a pompous jackass, and I apologize in advance, there's a Latin term, uberamai fide, it suddenly means sort of like the utmost good faith. And so if you want to think about what it means to be a fiduciary, and fiduciaries aren't just lawyers, but every lawyer who's engaged in an attorney-client relationship with a client is a fiduciary of that By client. definition. Yes, uh, or, 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 or by legal construct. If you are a fiduciary, you want to treat your, uh, the person for whom you are acting or the entity for whom you are acting with the utmost good faith. And, and that's a higher standard than just ordinary care. And in instances where a fiduciary, where a faithful fiduciary fails to do that, then they can be liable under the law. Okay. So in this case, that's one of the issues at play is whether the, the legal team lived up to the fiduciary responsibilities to the client. Exactly. Another issue that's at play, and it'll be, it'll, you know, it'll, it still remains to be seen whether it'll, it'll, whether it'll be an issue that will get traction and have legs in the lawsuit, but we certainly intend to replete it. And I, I, I mentioned this recently to the judge who's handling the case during a court conference that we were on. And it's our belief that, uh, you know, Mr. Hecht and others who are associated with Mr. Hecht engaged in uh, essentially racketeering under the Colorado racketeering statute. And so that's kind of a complex set of facts, and we are going to plead those facts again on September 4th. And we, we believe that we're going to be able to plead them in a way that makes them cognizable under the law, and we'll move forward with that cause of action and see whether we can demonstrate it on the merits. And uh, Mr. Heck and the other adversaries will have the opportunity to 
uh, make a motion to dispense of that claim right at the threshold, which is, which is standard, by essentially saying, even if you accept all of these uh, facts as alleged as true, they don't add up to the fundamental elements of the cause of action, and therefore it can't go forward. Okay, so there's a lot of legal uh, nitpicking that goes on in lawsuits as people try to funnel down what the issues are and how they fit into the code of legal ethics and laws. Exactly. So, so, so our adversaries in the case will have an opportunity to, you know, if, if, they, if they decide to do so, which I anticipate they will, to make arguments as to why those causes of action should be thrown out or dismissed. And we'll have an opportunity to explain to the court why they shouldn't. And ultimately, it'll be up to the trial court in the first instance to decide. Explain to our viewers that we all hear about the discovery process. Uh, you know, it's like the discovery channel. You have to find stuff out. Explain what is discovery? How does it work? Yeah, and so, so that is something that's really pretty unique to the U.S. legal system. I've had, some, I've had some foreign clients over the years, and when you're counseling foreign clients who have U.S.-facing litigation about one of the fundamental differences, perhaps, between how litigation might work in their country or in regions where they regularly conduct business, and the United States, it's exactly that discovery. In the discovery process, once you file a lawsuit, you have an opportunity to ask questions of, uh, seek testimony under oath from witnesses, and most importantly, get documents from the other side that pertain to issues that are broadly related to your case. So documents could be emails, texts, phone messages. Exactly. And, and in this day and age, electronic media, uh, evidence that has been saved in some form of electronic media, whether it's text messages, commonly emails, uh, any, anything we of that. We were missing 31,000 of them under... <laughs> uh... <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You've also represented uh, Donald Trump. Yes. My, uh, tell us a little bit, or can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, I, 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 I can. My, my, my firm had, has a longstanding relationship with Donald Trump, both uh, well before he became a political candidate and, and the president of the United States, and we've continued to represent him in certain matters post his election, uh, probably the most notable one of which now is the Summer Zervos lawsuit. Uh, so my, my partner, Mark Kazowitz, handles uh, that lawsuit. In 2005, so now we're dating back to well before when he was a political candidate, I was involved in assisting my firm in a representation of Mr. Trump involving one of his buildings in New York City. The crux of the lawsuit was whether or not Mr. Trump was entitled as the original sponsor of a very, very high-end condominium to certain tax abatements that the city had granted the condominium as new construction, or whether the new board of uh, managers of the, of the condominium, who were essentially the first round of owners of the condominium were entitled to the benefit of those abatements for the building. So this case got litigated in state court in New York, and, and I think this is another example of where my, my firm is sort of good at thinking outside the box. And so we had sort of a binary litigation where there was a claim against Mr. Trump, and our firm was defending him on that claim on the merits such as they were. But we also quickly realized that if the current board of directors was replaced by a board of directors that had a less favorable view about the merits of the lawsuit or just sort of the, the sensibility of the lawsuit, that board could independently determine if it was so inclined that it wanted to drop the lawsuit. So 
you know, through, through, through some people who owned in the building who were concerned about the negative publicity that the lawsuit was bringing on the building and potentially the loss of value of their units in the building. Uh, a coalition was built and we ended up orchestrating a significant proxy fight. The net net of all of this was at a, I think it was a church basement on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, came to have a vote of all these owners of these high-end apartments in this building. And they, I remember the building just being overflowing and certain people from the board of directors of this building, who themselves were sort of titans of industry, they just owned in this incredibly nice apartment, spoke about why the lawsuit should go forward and, and, and whatnot. And then Mr. Trump got up there and he gave an incredibly, <laughs> he gave an incredibly persuasive speech about why the lawsuit didn't make a lot of sense for a whole host of reasons. And, and then the vote was taken and his coalition won in a landslide. Did you actually deal with Donald Trump? Did you talk to him, meet with him? And, and so, so, so my involvement on the case was uh, relatively late in the game, but I was involved in several meetings where the head of my firm and myself and others were meeting with Mr. Trump to discuss various aspects of the case. Did he seem pretty normal? I mean, does he seem like a regular guy? Because you see, the, the media, depending on which side of the aisle you sit, tries to paint him as this like totally unreasonable but what was your, when you dealt with him, was he okay? Yeah, yes. He was fine? Yes, yes. And again, he, he, was, he, was like, he was like a typical, sophisticated, smart client who was concerned about his lawsuit, wanted to know what the strategy was, and had smart and sensible things to say about how to execute that strategy. Okay, and we should give uh, President Trump, no matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican, came out with phenomenal news on the economy today over four percent gdp growth in the second quarter I mean, just unheard of numbers in recent years people are getting off food stamps uh, minority unemployment is down it's a, it's a beautiful thing even if you're a democrat you've got to be happy that the country at least economically is improving um, so let's now let's continue because you got a lot more stuff that you're doing you're not just sitting around on one case uh you're uh you just, we should put a feather in your cap. You just won a $16 million judgment in San Francisco. What was that story about? So, uh, yeah, that was uh, earlier this year in, uh, in, in April and May. Uh, I, I had a one-month jury trial in the federal district court, actually, in Sacramento, it's a long California. Trial. It was, that, is a, that is a long trial for a civil trial. David so. had one of those three or four-week trials where he won $22 million. That's not bad. That's not bad at all. <laughs> and so I tried the case with two of the partners from my firm, uh, Mark Ressler and Jason Takanucci, and we had a team of other lawyers who were, who were contributing a significant amount to the effort. And, uh, and we, were, we, you know, we were lucky enough to get a jury verdict for our client. In that case, we represented a publicly traded company whose NASDAQ traded, which is Dallas-based. They had engaged a consulting firm to change out the enterprise resource planning software that they use to globally manage their business. And oftentimes, while your product of software that you're using is kind of out of the box, in order for it to fit the business needs of each individual client, it needs intensive customization and design and then implementation. And uh, that, implement that implementation turned out to be a disaster. And so we sued the consulting firm for professional negligence, fraud, and a host of other theories. And uh, we were lucky enough to get a favorable Good for you. It's a beautiful thing. So now that you're, you're sort of moving through these other cases, you've got some other very, very prominent national cases going on. One with uh, uh, 
Ryan Kavanaugh, who it's a big, prominent Hollywood case. Uh, you're representing Carrie Metz, a very prominent, very well-known, very well-respected investor. Um, what What's the story on that case? Because it's in the L.A. news all the time, and you guys are right there. No, exactly. In the middle of it. Exactly. And so this is another case that, again, this case was under David's stewardship for quite a while, and, uh, and, and he brought us in fairly recently to co-partner with him on the case. And in that case... Carrie Metz was essentially an investor in Relativity, Relativity Media, which was uh, the studio that Ryan Kavanaugh essentially founded and ran for a while. A big studio. I mean, we're talking big time Hollywood. It's not. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. And, uh, and, and, and I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that ultimately Ryan Kavanaugh was shown to be one of the most astonishing flimflam man Hollywood's ever seen. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't think there's any doubt about that because this isn't the only lawsuit that he's dealing with. Exactly, exactly. And uh, he, he's, he, 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 the highway behind him is literally littered with lawsuits from disgruntled people who have had to deal with him. I like to think of our case as the following. Uh, our, our, our client, Carrie Metz, who's, a, who's, an, who's an investor and very successful uh, uh, trader and uh, hedge fund person essentially got fleeced into investing money not once but twice into relatively you know relativity media and uh, it's a difficult case we're fighting fiercely for Carrie in the case and we'll see where it goes but uh, you know what it just may be the case that Mr. Kavanaugh just messed with the wrong Texan Carrie's from Texas. Exactly. And I love Texans, by the way. We have a ton of Texans. Anybody who can get out of, like, Houston or Austin in the summer comes to Aspen. Believe me, they do, because it's like 100 million degrees humidity down there. And Texans are normal. I mean, they're pretty nice people. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, my, I was actually born on Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth, Texas, which was where my father was stationed at the time, and, uh, and, then, and then quickly was transported up to New York. When I was on active duty, I worked for a Texan who had gone to Texas Tech and was from Lubbock. And then there were two other Texas officers on my ship. And one thing Texans really love to talk about is Texas. And on a deployment that goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks, that can get a little bit tiring, notwithstanding how great a state Texas is. So I went down to the personnel office, and I pulled up all our service records. And I was the only person who actually had a birth certificate from Texas. The three actual Texans were from Pennsylvania. They were born, two of them were born in Pennsylvania, and one, I think, was actually born in Brooklyn. And so I Xeroxed all of our birth certificates and put them up on the bridge, and I think I sort of definitively established who the actual Texan was by birth. That's, that's pretty cool. So, okay, so we're doing the, the Kavanaugh-Metz litigation, representing Carrie Metz. Uh, it's, uh, you read about it all the time in the Hollywood... Uh, uh, rags and blogs because they love this stuff um, and but you made a, a really you alluded to a really important point Ron that <clears throat> Carrie got fleeced Carrie a very sophisticated smart guy got fleeced because he believed in the friendship of Mr. Kavanaugh and I think that's important for our Aspen viewers in Aspen we have some of the most intelligent, highly educated, sophisticated people, not just in the United States, but in the world. <clears throat> but every month we read in the newspaper about how one of these people in Aspen got, trusted their friend and got screwed out of millions of dollars. So how, 
how would you advise some of the viewers who are watching now who aren't unsophisticated people? What kind of legal counsel do they need, even when they're confident in their deal, their friend? Tell them who they need to go to to make sure that they don't get royally screwed over. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's two things there. <clears throat> One is I think they should sort of be like President Reagan when we were talking about nuclear disarmament with the Soviet Union back in the 80s, which is trust, that's fine, but, but verify. verify. And, and lots, of, lots of high net worth individuals who've had great success in life who get preyed upon in these situations where friendship, I think, clouds their judgment, they just have to realize that friendship is great and business is another thing altogether. And whatever your typical paradigm is for looking at a deal and taking a sober analysis of a deal, don't change that because you're in a situation with someone who is your friend or who you trust because they're your friend. There's nothing wrong with doing business with your friends. In fact, that's how lots of business gets done. There's nothing wrong with trusting people. But don't allow a friendship or trust to obliterate the normal checks and balances that you would put on any deal. Right, don't allow it to make you stupid. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because when we first moved to Aspen many years ago, <clears throat> we befriended a couple that lived across the street in a very multi-million dollar home, and they were young and good looking and charming, and they bought everybody $800 bottles of wine, and it went on and on, and everybody asked me, what does he do? And I said, you know, I don't know. I don't want to know. He's a nice guy. He's my friend. One day he came to me and asked me for money. Yeah. And he was running a public company, and he offered me a 8% preference, and uh, it wasn't too good to be true. A personal guarantee, he had a dress up with balance, he just needed a million bucks. And, and I said the same thing to him that I said to everybody who comes to me with a deal. You know, it's, I appreciate this opportunity, but I'm into stay rich schemes, you know. So <clears throat> he came back to me and asked for less money, but it just wasn't, you know, I, he was my friend. I didn't want to ruin the friendship. I'm out to dinner a few months later with some very prominent, wealthy people who you'd know who they were in Aspen. Turns out they gave him millions of bucks, and he disappeared in the middle of the night, off like a prom dress, out like a fat kid in dodgeball, wound <laughs> up in, like, I don't know, China or Hong Kong or Macau or something. And the interesting part of the story is I went home. I was so upset because I could have given him money, and he was my friend. I mean... He's still my friend, because I never give him any money. <clears throat> and I looked on the internet with his name and a few variables, and he came up on a website called crooks.com. He had done this before. You could have just Googled it. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing. Every, that's sort of the beauty of the information age. No matter who you are, no matter what part of the milieu you're in in terms of socioeconomic status, if you can get yourself to a public library, you can get yourself to a computer, you can get yourself on Google, you can find out a lot of stuff about a lot of things. You really can. I'm sure you do that as part of your normal due diligence when you start out. We, we absolutely do. <clears throat> so uh, here's, here's an interesting phenomenon. As a surgeon, my previous career was in surgery. Uh, the surgeon's a very important person, but you really need a team. You need the surgeon, you need an anesthesiologist, you need the hospital, you need sterility, you need a nurse, you, you need the recovery unit. Surgery doesn't take place from one lone guy with a scalpel. How important, and the reason I bring this up is because when David has complex cases, okay, 
he, he builds a team around that case that's customized to the needs of the client. He doesn't just assume, I'm a lawyer, I can do everything, but he brings in specific pieces so the client gets the best anesthesiologist, surgeon, uh, recovery room nurse. Talk about the legal concept of building a team. Yeah, it's, it's, it's critically important to success in a complex case to have lawyers who can check their ego enough at the door that they realize that they are not capable in a lot of instances of doing everything themselves or doing it the only way that they think it should be done because that often does a disservice to the client. So, and my cases with David are a great example of this. There are multiple law firms on these cases, so the cases necessarily have to be collaborative. It's really great value add for the client because each set of lawyers in that regard often brings a whole different set of perspectives and experiences to the table. As long as the information isn't staying siloed and you have a mutually respectful collaborative environment, you should wind up with a much better strategy and result for your client. Where you run into problems is where information just starts getting siloed so that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing and you don't really have a coherent strategy at that point. Or more importantly, where the top-down leadership just isn't there or they don't want to hear, or they, 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 they can't be told that they're not right, they can't be dissuaded off their position. And look, it's, sometimes it's fine to have strong convictions about something because you are right, but nine times out of 10, you benefit from listening to people who are smart about things tell you why maybe your strategy isn't as sound as you think it is. Yeah, exactly. It's good to have some counterpoint, okay? It's good to stand by your, I, I totally agree with you. I have my convictions, but I always want to listen to the other side. That's why I watch both news services at night, just to hear what the other sides are saying. Right. The problem with some lawyers, though, in that situation is, is that lawyers, I think, naturally are willing to live in the gray area. And you have to live in a gray area because every case is just two sets of competing narratives. It's one of the reasons I love trials and litigation. As an English literature major in college, and I've continued sort of my love of literature through my cases because you take this incohate set of facts and you have to spin those facts. We don't get to change the facts, but we do get to determine which facts are important and which facts are inconsequential. And you have to put them into coherent narrative that works. If you're not willing to collaborate with people and think about whether your narrative works or doesn't work, that's when you start running into problems. Yeah, it's good to be able to bounce it off someone and see how they're going to respond to it. But I like the word you used. That at the end of the day, a lawyer is making a case. He's making an argument. The other side's going to make their argument, but you're going to spin your facts the, the way that puts your client in the best light. Yeah, I mean, if, if looking back on 22 years of just doing this day in and day out, in the trenches, grinding out these cases, if there's one skill that I think you really need to have, because there are so many bright, smart lawyers out there, there are so many energetic people out there, the one critical skill is there is just so much information in every case. It's literally overwhelming. And you need to be able to figure out what the important facts are. Not what all the facts are, what right. the critical facts are. Because ultimately you're gonna present those to a jury. Right, just in the, in the trial I just had, um, these are very you know broad-based numbers, but I think, no exaggeration, probably a couple of hundred thousand documents produced in the case. Millions of pages of information. And you can't present all those in, in a, a lifetime. In a four-week trial, and we were litigating against 
excellent adversaries, two law firms, collectively in the trial, maybe 220 exhibits out of tens of thousands of documents went in front of the jury. That is the sum total of evidence, documentary evidence, that the jury considers. So the key to winning, the key to putting leverage on the other side, the key to exacting settlements, the key to victory is figuring out where are the important documents? And once you find them, how do you leverage them? Can sometimes, can you remember a case where one document, like you see in the movies at the end, they pull up like the secret document that breaks the case. Can you remember a case like that? Yeah, there, 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 are, certainly, there are certainly instances of cases where, you know, we are thinking that the situation is such as it is, but we don't really have any definitive proof. Because here's another sort of like fallacy about the law from TV. People think that when you cross-examine someone, you just naturally break them down and they confess. And, and they cry them. and they give you. But you try, you try getting an artful liar to move off their story. It's like hammering jelly to a wall. And so <laughs> one, of the, one of the best ways to get an artful liar off his or her story. I love that, I love that framing, an artful liar. And these people are good. They, after a while, they believe their own bunker. Oh, exactly. And, 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 and they, they, they come across as incredibly credible because they do believe their bunko right down to their core. But if you have a document that you can shove under their nose, oftentimes that can at least calibrate an artful liar back towards the truth. Do you ever like have that secret, you know, the document? It's not a secret because it's been produced in discovery. But do you ever say, uh, Mr. Jones, just read that for the jury, please. Do you ever do that? Uh, yeah, yes, yes, that, yeah, that, 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 that definitely happens. Um, and, and, and you'll be surprised, because at the end of the day, oftentimes, a smart person will look at it, and they'll, they'll, they'll turn it 45 degrees out of sync and try to put it in the best possible light. And then hopefully you have another document that you can come at them with and hammer them with a little bit. And ultimately, if there are too many things that a common sense person can just look at it and say, wait a minute, that's what happened. I'm not believing this nonsense. Credibility is a really dangerous thing for a witness because you can have, you can, you can be totally credible to the jury or the finder of fact, but then there's, this, there's a saying we had in the Navy, which is that honor is like an island, rugged and without a beach. Once you leave it, once you lose it, it's you can't return. It's hard to get back on, yeah. Credibility is a lot like that, that, too. That's an interesting thing. How important is the judge in a case? The judge is critically important in the case. The judge is the referee. The judge, in the first instance, is, is deciding critical legal issues. And the judge, when you're at a jury trial, is someone who is almost always beloved of the jury. Because the judge, whether you know, he or she is taking care of that jury, making sure they're getting their lunch, speaking to them when they're moving to and, you know, to and fro, dealing with their issues. And so you need to be really cognizant of the fact that the jury almost always is enamored of the judge during the trial, even if you're a little frustrated with what the judge is doing. And so getting along with judges and being sufficiently persuasive and sufficiently aggressive while also not going across the line where either the jury gets upset with you because they think you're being too harsh with the judge, or frankly, more importantly, the judge gets upset with you and just, you know, shoots a flame you at you that burns your eyebrows off. a line between trying to advance your position and not pissing off the judge. Right, exactly. We, we, in, in, in my recent trial, we, we can sort of laugh about it now, uh, there, was a, there was a very heated dispute about an evidentiary question, say on the Wednesday afternoon of the trial. And the, the trial session concluded with the judge not really resolving the issue, but having reserved on the issue. 
and, 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 and I burned up a decent amount of goodwill, as did other of my partners at the trial, arguing forcefully for why we thought that piece of evidence needed to be admitted and published to the jury. It was an important piece of evidence. And the next morning, the judge came out, and outside the absence of the jury, and she was a terrific judge on the trial, and she said to us, I'm going to, you know, I've, I've given a lot of thought to the arguments both sides made, and I'm going to allow the evidence to be published under this circumstance. Uh, and then she gave a general admonishment to our side of the table, and she said, but you will respect me. And the beauty of it was, out of the three of us, none of the three of us could figure out exactly who she was directing, uh, you know, who she was directing her admonition to. Which was smart. The, the, general, the general counsel <laughs> of the client thought it was, say, partner A. I thought it was partner C, and partner C thought it was me. And so <laughs> that's really an excellent rebuke when it's leveled in a way that resonates with everyone you're sort of intending as your audience. So, Ron, as a trial lawyer, as a litigator, you've seen this process for 22 years. How often do you think the jury gets it wrong? What's your, what's your, I mean, sometimes, you, sometimes you're representing a client where you know it's not, it's not black, it's not white, it's gray, and it could go either way, but sometimes you feel, wow, this is pretty good evidence. Have you seen it where you thought? Uh, insofar as I'm going to have to be in front of juries in the future, I'm sort of loath to sort of say anything bad about a jury process, but I, I will say this. Years ago, I had a case when I was sort of learning as a lawyer. It was a pro bono case for a gentleman who was in on a double murder in Attica. He was serving two life sentences. And he had suffered a stroke in prison. He was getting elderly. And the question was whether or not he was getting appropriate post-stroke medical care from the New York State Department of Corrections while at Attica. So my law firm at the time took on the case pro bono for that prisoner under a statute called Section 1983, which is a federal civil statute. And we were essentially arguing that if you're suffering from a medical infirmity and you're purposefully not getting the treatment you need while you're incarcerated, that's tantamount to cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. We were able to push that all the way to a jury trial. And ultimately, I got smoked in the jury trial. The, the state won the case. My prisoner didn't get relief. It's okay I, to lose once in a while because otherwise, you know, nobody wins 100%. Not, not even Tom Brady wins every... I, you know... <laughs> There are lawyers who are way more effective than other lawyers and who are consistently effective at winning. And by winning, I mean either winning a trial or getting a settlement in a case that's, that's beneficial for their client. That's satisfactory to their client in a meaningful way. And, 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 and my firm and certain other firms in the city and nationwide have a great track record of doing that. But any lawyer who tells you he wins or she wins all the time, they're either, they're either BSing you or they're just really not in the trenches fighting the kinds of fights you got to fight. Or they're not trying the difficult cases. Right, exactly, you know. exactly. We, you know, and so in this instance, what was, what was really confounding to me was two of the jurors agreed to come out after their verdict was rendered and talk to us about what their reasoning was. And that's often rare in a trial. Sometimes the jurors just want to go home. They don't want to talk to the lawyers. So these two people came out. And one of the things that one of the jurors told me that was really like a material factor in her decision if I, could if I could rerun the trial in 100,000 simulations, I never would have even thought to emphasize that evidence. Because quite frankly, I don't even know what the color of the sky is in that person's world. But notwithstanding, they fixated on that. That was their thing, and they just went with it. That's sort of really one of the reasons why most cases settle. If you are a business or you're a sophisticated person and you're in a high-stakes, high-end litigation, once that litigation gets to the point where there's been enough discovery, 
where it's sufficiently leveraged so both sides kind of understand what the strengths and weaknesses of their respective cases are, that's when people who are rational usually can sit down and come up with a settlement that works. Right. David, actually, my son David Bovino, who's a lawyer and working with you, had a case once where he knew that the critical fact was that the doctor's wife, who was in a pageant that day, didn't go home and change out of her pageant dress to go to the emergency meeting and or some something like that and and the judge was a female judge and she she knew that as long as they had 10 minutes nobody was going to go to a dinner meeting in a pageant dress and it turned out it showed that they were all lying and so it's just like one little fact like that exactly it, it's amazing now you've also represented some some high-end Russian oligarch litigation. Talk about scary stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, I wouldn't necessarily say it's scary because they, they, you know they, my 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 Russian clients have been terrific clients, and they are terrific clients. But uh, for years, we had a case for a Russian industrialist for one of his companies, where he had been aggrieved by a bulge bracket U.S. bank, and we were tried a couple of cases for him in the United States against that bank. And, uh, and, and it was an interesting case. This, uh, this gentleman was uh, deposed in the case, and he agreed to be deposed in Paris. So we, had a, we, we were adverse to an excellent law firm, really good lawyers on the other side. And we ultimately worked out through some toing and froing that he would sit for a deposition in Paris, you know, rather than have to come to the United States or for them to have to go to Moscow to depose him. When it was time to prepare him for his deposition, the original plan from his general counsel was I was to fly to Moscow with my co-counsel who was a, a Russian, a, a U.S.-based lawyer who was in a Russian law firm, fly with my co-counsel to Russia, prep him in Moscow, and then we were going to make our way to Paris. I go to work that day at a deposition that day, and around 11 o'clock I get an email from the general counsel saying, Moscow's out, change of plans, meet us in Athens. So I call the firm's travel agent. It's and like my, a James Bond movie, you know? I mean, I was telling my wife this as it was happening, and she's just like, come on, you're just, you're, that's nonsense. And so I make my way to Athens, and I get to Athens, and when we land in Athens, we turn our Blackberries on, and we get a message saying, car will come to the hotel tomorrow morning, take you to Heliport, helicopter will fly you out into the Aegean, you'll land on his yacht, you'll prep him on his yacht, and then we'll bring you back to Paris. Everybody gets prepped on their yacht these days, I mean. So we cool our jets in <laughs> Athens for a night. There's a, there's a great, there's actually a great Greek restaurant in New York City in Midtown called Milos, but there's another, there's a Milos affiliated restaurant in Athens, so have a great dinner there. And then we're thinking that we're gonna be heading on the helicopter out to the Aegean. The next morning we wake up, they say, change of plans, yachts actually in the Red Sea, fly to Dalaman, Turkey. So now we fly to Istanbul, and then we get on a commuter jet, essentially, from Istanbul to Dalaman. And I find myself maybe 18 hours later in Dalaman, Turkey. And I'm with Russians who speak multiple languages. I don't even think there's a Russian speaker in this whole resort. It's like a seaside resort. Nice place. The next morning, a bunch of black Mercedes with tinted windows roll up to the place. We get in. They drive us to an unbelievably nice marina. We're standing there, a cigarette boat comes flying in with these British guys on it. They're like, all right, mates, get on the boat. We get on, they turn around, they gun us out into the, um, into the Red Sea. We're not that far from Syria there. And there's unbelievably nice yachts out there. And so my client had basically like his family yacht, and then he had what to me looked like the equivalent of like a U.S. Naval helicopter landing ship. <laughs> so we, we conduct our meeting on that ship. 
And when it ends, the cigarette boats come again. I get jetted back into Dalaman and ultimately make my way it's back to Paris. It's a great story. We can make it into a movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But if, was, if you put it in a movie. It's like movie, a once-in-a-lifetime business trip. If you put it in a movie, people would say, how contrived. You know, they'd never really be jetting you to Istanbul. And then it's just like you see, you know, in, in the uh, Tom Cruise Mission Impossible stuff. It exactly. It was crazy. And uh, it was it was it was quite quite a trip, and 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 and, and frankly, it was pretty garden variety. You know, we were prepping him for a civil deposition in a U.S. case, but uh, you know, he travels where he wants to travel when he wants to travel, and yeah. you accommodate his schedule. He doesn't necessarily accommodate yours. It makes sense to me. Which if I were an oligarch, I'd it isn't isn't different from a lot of clients. I probably do the same thing. So okay, let's try to wrap things up here. You're you're a, a very prominent litigation expert. You work for uh, Kasowitz, Benson & Torres, a national litigation firm. We want to thank Mark Kasowitz if he's watching because my son says he's a good guy. He is. And uh, we want to thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise. If someone wants to reach you, can they reach you through David's law firm? Or? Absolutely. That's probably the best way to reach me. They can reach out to David, and then David can, 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 can reach out, and, and we, can, we can connect. Terrific. Well, I want to thank you. I want to thank your wife, Dara, for letting you come on today and getting out here to Aspen. We want to see a lot more of you. Uh, you have any good feelings about Aspen? What do you think of our little town? Oh, my goodness. It's, it's an incredible place. I mean, anything I would say would sound cliche, but uh, I've absolutely loved it here. It's my first time here, and it's, it's just breathtaking. Well, we're really happy to have you, Ron. You're a very nice guy. And David said you're a terrific uh, trial lawyer, so... Welcome to Aspen. Thank you. Good luck with your cases. If you need anybody, call Ron, and uh, we will see you next week. All right. Well, thank you for having me on.